I start grabbing anything that's left in the shop. Nappies, a packet of party poppers, a measuring jug without a handle. My hand closes on a thin packet of preserved fruit that has been missed. The rush of flavour. The creature, hidden in the shelves, calls, Oh! Oh! Two women stand close to each other in an aisle labelled cans. They're big and young with strong pink arms in singlets, even though the wind that blows across the desert outside is cold. One holds a tin, the other grabs for it, and they fall into each other until the one with the tin bites the other on the soft, exposed flesh of her upper arm, pushes away, gripping the prize. Back at the register now, the owner of the store says loudly, I don't think I should sell that to you. Oh, fine, I'll just take it then. The tin clatters on other things in the basket. I'll call my guys, the owner says. Tell everyone mother is coming. The woman laughs. Those dudes couldn't catch a mouse. The door chimes her departure and the owner appears around the corner of the aisle. What was in the can? I ask while I lay my hand on an open box of air freshener. Fish. It was our last. It's all gone. The woman on the ground scans the empty shelf, then examines the bite. Not deep, but it has drawn bright, bright blood. Oh, oh, yes. Welcome to the Good Reading Magazine podcast, sponsored by Pantera Press. Good Reading is a monthly magazine dedicated to books and reading and aims to help readers discover their next favourite book. You can find out more about the books discussed on today's podcast at goodreadingmagazine.com.au. Welcome back to the Good Reading Podcast. I'm Max Lewis, and today we're joined by Laura Jean McKay, whose latest book, The Animals in That Country, takes an idyllic concept, what if we could talk to animals, and completely twists it on its head. A virus spreads through an undisclosed country, allowing those infected to read the body language of animals and respond in turn. How society and our protagonist, the alcoholic and misanthropic Jean Bennett, responds to this newfound communication is as funny as it is disturbing. Laura, thanks so much for joining us today. Thank you for having me here. So you've just finished recording your audiobook version of the book. What was that like? It was wonderful. I begged them to let me do it and I was so thrilled when they said yes. Um, They said, I mean, I think it came down to the fact that maybe I was the only person who might be able to vaguely understand how (laughs) to do the animal voices. (laughs) So um, yeah, it was, it was intense. It's, it's intense sitting in a little room um, for days on end. Um, I guess uh, reading about the animal apocalypse when Outside in Sydney, there's there's another sort of apocalyptic exactly yeah event going on. Yeah, so that's probably my next question. Did the um, current, I guess, coronavirus epidemic, I guess you could say, change how you looked at the book reading it through the second time? It did. Uh, it. I mean, I I couldn't believe um, how some of the scenes mimicked what seemed to be going on outside when I first yeah. arrived in Sydney. To do the recording, I went straight to the supermarket and joined the queue of other people in the toilet paper aisle taking photographs, you know, some with masks on, some without. Writing the book, I was a little bit worried that I'd made the characters a little bit too selfish, you know, would people really, you know, my opinion of humans, um, (laughs) especially when we talk about how we treat animals, you know, Mm. uh, 
isn't great, but um, I was worried that I'd made the human characters too selfish. Um, but I think looking at the way that people are responding to coronavirus and this this manic stockpiling, this inability to share, um, this inability to feel for the the victims and the survivors of mm. coronavirus. Um, maybe I got it spot on. Yeah, well, just, <laughs> I can't always say that. <laughs> just last week at time of recording, there was a fight that broke out at a Woolies over toilet paper. And I think there was some biting involved, which was the extract that you just read out. So there was biting? Is, I think so. Yeah, I'm not sure. Sh- um, don't quote me on that. But I think there was potentially some biting involved. So yeah, it's very, very serendipitous. A potential biting situation yeah. in fiction and in life. Well, the book, um, it's a very interesting, I guess, entry in the genre of dystopian fiction and apocalyptic fiction, but also, as I mentioned, the trope, I guess, of talking animals. What drove you to combine those kind of ideas together? I think I was really writing two books. I was writing a book um, that represents um, animals on the page, but uh does that in a way that humans can understand other animals so I, I did this through language so it's really that's really the speculative fiction novel and then I was also writing a novel about a gritty woman who's going mm. through a lot of things and I needed to be able to jam those two together and that was such a fascinating arduous very long-winded process but it was very intentional because I felt that I needed to get those two strains right to to be able to make Sue's character work as her own dingo self and to mm. be able to make Jean's character work as her own human self and to bring those two together um, in a in an event that, mm. that changes them. You have a PhD in creative writing with a special focus on literary animal studies. Um, are you able to tell us a little bit about that study and how you were able to weave that into the book? Sure. Uh, so doing the PhD really helped me because I was able to really get stuck into that super nerdy research. I was able to truly horrify myself Mm. with um, animal videos and animal stories and um, animal studies theoretical research uh, and really roll around in that for about four years. And I also had supervisors and also what we call the very niche animal studies community, which is a, an area of study, which is just filled with passionate nerds who care about how we think and talk about animals. And these people come from geology and history and creative writing. And every now and then we come together. So um, I, I really did need that support to be able to uh, go into this novel as deeply as I did. Other people may not have needed that much support, but I did and I got it. It was great. And the title of the book is taken from a Margaret Atwood poem, I think from the 60s, if I'm not wrong. Um, And there's also an epigraph from that poem as well. What um, drew you to that poem and to include it in the book like that? Mm. I love Margaret Atwood's writing, as do so many uh, especially her apocalyptic tales. Um, I mean, that poem just just came along with many, many other stories uh, that I was inspired by and drew from in the creation of this novel. Uh, and the idea that the animals have the faces of people, which is the quote that I use at the front of the book, I thought really matched quite well mm. with uh, what I was what I was trying to say and what I was trying to do. And then later on in the poem, uh, she writes, "The animals have the faces of animals," and that was really the trajectory that I wanted to 
take Jean's relationship with Sue um, on. At the start of The Animals in That Country, when the animals start talking, Jean is really seeing Sue through her perspective. So Sue calls Jean queen and mother and mm. it's all it's all very um, hierarchical. And then as Jean gets to know Sue, she realises that what she's actually saying is quite different mm. to what she was projecting on the dingo. And in the end, they're, they're having quite an interesting exchange where actually Sue has taken the power in the relationship and yeah. she is helping Jean to survive, really. So you mentioned other kind of stories and texts you'd found through this course. What were, were there any kind of interesting or noteworthy ones that you drew a lot from? Oh, there were so many books that I looked at. Um, some particular stories that really, really struck me were uh, Ellen Van Nerven's Water from her collection Heat and Light. That is just the most incredible, it's called a short story, but it's almost a novella. Um, and it's basically about plant people who fall in love with humans and humans who fall in love with plant people huh. and um, set in an incredible future scenario. And also Ursula Le Guin's The Author of the Acacia Seeds, which um, is about a group of nerds, nerds like me um, who study animal poetry. Yeah, they've realised that ants actually write poetry and they inscribe them on seeds and, and there's a very sort of intense study of that. Uh, there were also some really, really uh, formative books. One of the first ones that really got me was uh, Anna Crean's quarterly essay, Us and Them, which is about uh, our relationships uh, to food and, and um, animals and and things like that. And when I was first thinking about writing this book, I thought, oh, no one's going to want to read an adult story about animals. That's that's yeah. that's silly pants talk, you know. That's that's for children's books. And then Anna Crean's Us and Then ca Them came out and showed me that you could write very seriously about this topic. So I was really curious with the cover of the book because it's very striking. Was it a previously existing artwork or was it something that was created specifically for the book's cover? Yeah, this uh, is actually... a an artwork by Annie Murphy Robinson and it won the beautiful Bazaar Art Prize. And Annie Mur Murphy Robinson, um, she has this incredible process where she takes photos of her children and then she um, uses that as inspiration and covers um, a surface with charcoal and then sands away the charcoal until she sands in this photorealistic mm. image. Um, and I was trawling the internet as one does uh, for images and, and Scribe had all these fantastic covers um, that we were looking at. Uh, but I guess I wanted something that really um, spoke to the vibe of the book rather yeah, than necessarily being so well. illustrative. Yeah, and um, I think my publisher described it as finding something sly, like finding something that really was a was a real nod to the to the content rather than rather than a picture of a dingo or mm. something like that. And so at the 11th hour, literally, I, Annie Murphy Robinson had just won this prize and it just appeared on the internet and I just saw it and thought, oh, 
that's it. And then I spoke with my publisher and said, I know you're not going to put this on the cover, but this is what, this mm. is the feeling I want. And uh, they are just absolutely incredible at Scribe. And they said, yes, we want that too. And it just happened. Uh, and, you know, every time I look at this, this power ram, <laughs> this long horned ram, you know, I just feel that ram's really got things to say. Yeah, well, <laughs> that leads beautifully into my next question, which is the dialogue of the animals in the book because from the birds to the insects and everything in between every animal every thing I guess has a unique almost poetic weirdly like metaphorical dialogue um why did you choose to have it so I guess elusive and kind of hard to pin down Mm. the dialogue really I mean that was probably one of the hardest and most exciting parts of the creation of the book. And I could almost say that that was a separate little novel in Mm. itself. Um, I sort of wrote this thing in layers. And um, in an earlier draft, uh, which I showed my partner, um, he said, you know, this this book about talking animals is great, but there's no talking animals in it. (laughs) Where are they? Oh, yes. Okay, (laughs) better go back. And so I started really um, weaving in this dialogue and I was very horrified by the idea of of, um, having the animals talk on the page um, because I think of anthropomorphism. We're all so worried about that. Then I got over myself and realised that we anthropomorphise everything because humans are very simple creatures. We don't really know how to relate to things unless <laughs> we can relate them see to ourselves our, in them. Yeah. See ourselves in them, exactly. So so once I I'd, had gotten over that, I realised that the thing I really wanted to avoid was anthropomorphism, which is the centering of humans. Um, I wanted to centre the animals. And that was really exciting to me. And I do love working with dialogue. So I started... Um, just just popping things down on the page um, you'll see um, you'll see that the insects have caps they they tend to sort of uh, go through life yelling yeah, joyously they, the insects are my favorite the mosquitoes especially were my favorite the I mosquitoes think. are great <laughs> yeah they're very joyous talking animals in books are often quite prophetic mm. and um, poetic and they often have things to say that are going to solve the world yeah and I really wanted to avoid that I wanted them to be speaking for themselves not for humans Sue isn't speaking for Jean she's she's in dialogue um, as as an equal or or she believes she is anyway even if the reality is uh, that humans wouldn't treat her that way and on the topic of Jean as well she's a bit less than perfect like <laughs> I would say all the characters in the book what was it like writing a character that was so I guess rough around the edges and multifaceted as her because it's, it's I should say that she's all so good at her core but she's got a very rough exterior Mm. Um, similar to the animal dialogue once I got Jean um, she was very fun and very Mm. easy to write at first Jean was a young woman then she was a middle-aged man at at some point she was a cat I think she was a farmer and then um, I actually read a short story by a Tessa Mosfeg in which a a school teacher is is also a not so secret alcoholic and and tries to go mm. through her school day and I and I thought yeah that's that's Jean not not that character but that's the that's the, the sort of day yeah. and the vibe I want Jean to have um, and so once I found that um, I just really burst forward and I think I mean I think 
gene is a little bit of me. Um, there's certainly, you know, a, a rough, sweary, um, <laughs> yeah. road, road tripping woman <laughs> inside of me. Um, not very far under the surface. And so that was very fun. And I've spoken to um, a few other people and they, they've said that they feel like they've met her or they know her or they are her. Yeah, I like haven't had that much fun being inside of characters in a monologue since like Ignatius Riley from the Confederacy of Dancers or something like that, especially the way that she interacts with all the other characters and the animals and stuff like that. It's like so like almost absurd. I feel like everybody knows a gene as well. Or like you said, could be a gene themselves. There's a gene in everyone. <laughs> And I think um, on that, for a while she was called um, Judy or J- or Jane, and then I I just did a little writer's trick and said, oh, okay, I'll I'll give her my name, I'll give her the Jean from my name, just to get closer to her. And then yeah. she was Jean. I couldn't change her after that. I didn't even make that connection. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. It's on the cover. <laughs> yeah. Um, and Sue, as you mentioned as well, she's a very fascinating character, um, particularly because her motives are very, very obtuse. Um, what was the thinking behind her character and specifically making her a half-breed dingo? Mm. I was living in a wildlife park in the Northern Territory, as one does, um, on an artist residency up there. Uh, I was living in a caravan, um, so I, I was sort of around all these wild and captive animals mm all day and there was a dingo enclosure um very similar to the one in the book uh with uh two male dingoes and and a female and the female was called elsie and she was different to the other dingoes she was a bit hesitant um she was smaller um and she was not as into doing a show for everybody Mm. um you know she was she just seemed a a bit more dingo a bit a bit more wild and I was so fascinated by her I couldn't I couldn't win her over to me she would she wouldn't have a bar of me um and I guess she captured me and just um and then Sue burst onto the pages who is obviously a, a a different dingo to Elsie but um certainly inspired by, by that dingo and I, w- I was also interested in the idea of the the feeling about dingoes in Australia um, there's that notion of the feral there's that notion of what's wild there's that notion of what is captive and I think dingoes especially dingoes who have bred with other dogs really cross that into that uncomfortable boundary mm. we don't like um, animals not to be categorised. We like to be able to say that's vermin and that's my pet and yeah. that's the one I eat. Um, and and dingoes really sit in a really interesting place. And in Australian history, um, they've they've been around for around six thousand years. And so, um, how do Indigenous people feel about dingoes? How uh, do settler colonials feel about dingoes? Um, how do we feel about the modern dingo? It's interesting to me. And she, I, I like. I like that um, ambivalence of her character. Hmm. And despite the strong focus of animals in the book, human drama takes up a lot of the the plot of the book. What were you trying to say with that focus on, I guess, kind of petty dramas in light of such a weird, bizarre apocalypse? Yeah, I I love books that um that like the Hitchhiker's Guide to the Galaxy that start yeah. out um with a guy having a drink at the bar and then suddenly a spaceship crashes and he goes into space. Um, I've always liked books like that. I guess that's the speculative fiction genre. Uh, and so um 
I, I wanted there to be, um, as you say, I think that's a really good way to put it, um, these sort of petty human existences playing out. I mean, we can see that now the world is facing um, climate catastrophe and um, a strange virus that we don't know enough about yet. And yet we are still just carrying on with our days yeah. and, and worrying about our broken phones and our, our relationships and our annoying workmates and <laughs> um, life goes on and that it will continue to go on no matter what happens. And that's the very strange thing about being alive. It does sound quite grim, the novel, and it is very kind of dark in parts, but there's also a very light, almost absurdist sense of humour throughout the book. And there are several laugh out loud moments, I would say. Why did you want to weave in this um, this strand of humour underneath the apocalyptic tone of the book? I don't know if that was intentional. I mean, Jean is funny. Yeah. Sue is funny. Um, humans and animals are very funny and silly. And uh, I think that just comes through. Um, I I think that there is just a, a grim humour in everything, really, and it, it couldn't be helped with this novel. And also maybe um, on a technical level, uh, without the jokes, it would be it would maybe be a bit too dark. It'd be like the road or something. <laughs> a bit yeah, like it's a bit the too road, much. which I love. Yeah. <laughs> and um, I guess this is a kind of obligatory question you're probably asked a lot during your, your press circuit for the book, but if you could talk to any animal, extinct or otherwise, what would it be and what do you think they would say? Oh, my goodness. That is such a good question uh, and something that I need to start thinking about. Probably, oh, I, I want to say a dog, mm. um, but probably actually I would go outside and talk to some birds. Um, I really want to know what a crow is really saying. Mm. Um, they're not my favourite animals. I don't know whether I have a favourite animal. but um, Especially because crows recognise can remember faces, can't they? I believe yeah. so. They've got, and they, I believe they tell uh, each other, you know, yeah. where the food is and what's been happening. There's there's a fair bit of um, gossip and conversation going on, I believe. Um, where I'm living now in New Zealand, I, I pass uh, cows every day. Um, so I'd probably have a chat to a cow as well, mm. even though what they have to say um, might be a bit too disturbing to hear. I don't know. I think I'd just go around mm. and just talk to I'm, I'd be a little bit like Kimberly in the book, the um, the granddaughter in the book. I want to talk to yeah. everyone. You know? I guess, do you think you would start to become a bit mentally unhinged like the characters in the book do as a result of this, this new power? I think it would be pretty noisy out yeah. there. Um, once you started being able to talk to fish and insects and, and, um, and reptiles mm. and and mammals oh it would be a pretty noisy noisy world yeah and some people would get into it and other people would not be able to cope i think well um before we finish up um is there any hints on what your next book might be focusing on that's also a very good question um i've got a couple in my mind i've been carrying one around um for a few years now but i, th I think it's longer all i can say is that it's watery okay <laughs> Uh, but there might be might be else, something else coming a little sooner. Um, the most recent crises in Australia have have made me think more about our more immediate um, climate crisis, and there might be something in that. Mm. Well, given how your this book handled water in these particular <laughs> scenes, I'm a little bit frightened, but also looking forward to it. So <laughs> it should be very good. Well, thank you, Laura, for joining us today. Thank you so much.